Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Behold the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this Lord's Day, for this privilege of getting to gather together as your people to celebrate your resurrection. Lord, we pray now that as your word is opened, that you would do what only you can to open up our eyes, our ears, our hearts, and our minds, that we may receive it as it really is, not the word of man, but the word of God. Lord, let it be only your truth that is spoken this morning. Get me out of the way, remove distractions from our minds, and help us to engage truly with what you have for us today. Uh, may you be glorified in us now, and may we be edified and built up as your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we pick up again with our series on the mission of God. Now just to recap, we've been looking at God's plan of redemption for his fallen creation. And we come now to a vitally important element of that plan, one that people might not often think of as being closely related to the mission of God, and that is the question of children. For those of you taking notes this morning, I've broken this sermon into three headings. We'll begin with, number one, our view of children, move on to look at uh, how children fit into the mission of God, and then number three will be the discipleship of children. So let's begin with our first heading, our view of children. Now, secular culture, the unbelieving world around us, has, in some ways, a very low view of children. And this view, unfortunately, has even infected the church. Couples who will embrace children as a blessing, uh, particularly who will embrace many children as a blessing, especially if they do so without spacing their children by a socially acceptable margin, these couples can expect odd looks in the grocery store as they march their brood of blessings through the aisles. They can expect to hear comments like, don't you know what causes that? Don't you guys have a TV? And in some cases, these couples may even receive very serious rebukes from family and friends. The prevailing view in our culture, and unfortunately often even in Christian culture, is that after getting married, keep couples need to take a few years off to, quote-unquote, get to know one another. All right, we need some time just for us, or perhaps to save up money with two incomes so that we can then have the kind of lifestyle that we want. Children are viewed, perhaps as cute, but also as real burdens. Right, children are a financial burden. Children prevent people, especially women, from achieving all of their career goals. Feminism's satanic assault on the value and dignity of motherhood is an indirect assault on the value of children as well. And so a couple with this view, if they found out that a child was coming earlier than they had planned, is likely to react along the lines of, oh no. 
Brothers and sisters, as Christians, we must ensure that everything in our lives is in alignment with the word of God. Our worldview, our assumptions, our beliefs, and presuppositions must be in alignment with Scripture. That is to say, in everything that we think and believe, assume, uh, we must always strive to make sure that we agree with God. For God is right. So what has our God said about children? Well, if you read through the Bible, you will find that Scripture has a very different view of children than our modern secular culture. From beginning to end, children are seen not primarily as a burden, but as a wonderful blessing. Let's consider the following examples. Abram and Sarai were a very wealthy couple, and they were just entering their golden years. Right? They had property, they had servants, they had money, livestock, many, many earthly blessings. You can basically picture them as that enviable couple uh, in the financial ads. Uh, you know the ones that are trying to convince you to save for your retirement through this or that bank. Right? This is the, the uh, silver-haired couple just going to enjoy uh, their retirement years. No burdens of responsibility, no children to look after. They are now free uh, to enjoy their retirement years. And yet in Genesis 15, after God had again promised to bless Abram, uh, in spite of everything God had already given, Abram replies, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Now despite all that Abram already had, all the things that our secular culture would say, should be what you are after, should be what you would be happy with. Despite all of this, Abram longed for another blessing, a child. Grab that worldview and fast forward a couple generations to Jacob and the story of Rachel and Leah. Now, despite the many problems with their story, one thing that comes through very clearly through their rivalry is that everybody involved viewed children as a great blessing. As Leah declares at the birth of another child, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher, which means joy or gladness. Jump again to the beginning of Exodus, and the midwives who disobeyed Pharaoh's command to kill the baby boys were blessed by the Lord. Exodus 1 verse 20 says how God dealt well with the midwives. The people multiplied and grew strong. Catch this. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Right? Because they feared God, he gave them families families. The reward that God granted to them, the blessing he had for their obedience, for their faithfulness, was marriage and children, families. Jump ahead to 1 Samuel. Hannah, godly woman, goes up to the temple to pray, praying fervently to the Lord, and she prays that God would uh, look on her affliction and not forget her. What was she praying for? She wanted a son. And so the Lord answered her prayer, and she later conceived and gave birth to the prophet Samuel. Another example, uh, you may remember the story of Obed-Edom, 
Uh, This was the man uh, that was given the Ark of the Covenant to stay on his property during the time that King David was afraid of it. Uh, Do you remember that story where Uzzah had reached out and touched the Ark and was struck dead by God? Uh, And then David was like, I don't want the Ark anywhere around here, so like, let's drop it off at Obed-Edom's place. Uh, And God began to bless the household of Obed-Edom and everything on it. Uh, And it's interesting, one of the blessings that that 1 Chronicles says was that Obed-Edom had eight sons, it lists his sons, and then in verse 5, for God had blessed him. He had eight sons, for God had blessed him. Now turn with me to our opening passage here that Pastor Josh read for us, Psalm 127, verse 3, and we'll spend some time in this text. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now let us begin with what is just on the surface of this text. Children are a blessing. They are a good thing. It says a reward, a heritage, an inheritance. They are something to be desired, something you would want to have. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. Now, a heritage, in this case, means an inheritance. And just as you yourself are not the one that works to earn an inheritance, So also, children are not to be viewed merely as something that we would choose for ourselves at our own convenience, but we are to view them as a great gift granted to us by the Lord. And this text we see then that it is God who opens and closes the womb. Now we should mention here briefly that it is also not a blessing that God promises to everyone. Just as God does not grant us all the same physical or mental gifts. You know, I cannot do math the way that our accountants in this church can. Uh, God does not give us all the same physical or mental gifts. Uh, He does not grant all people the same types of financial blessings. Uh, God causes men to differ. And so also God does not promise, uh, nor does he grant this blessing to all people. Now, as we look through the scriptures at the role of children in the mission of God, please do not hear me wrong and conclude that those who are unable to have children for whatever reason are therefore not loved by God. That is not what we're saying. Isaiah 56 verse 4 and following, uh, God says, Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and in my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So God's instructions to the eunuchs, to those who would say, I am a dry tree, I have no offspring, I have no ability to have children. Uh, That instruction would certainly extend to all those who cannot have children. And God says they must not view themselves as if they could have no blessing from the Lord. For God says, those who please him, he will grant them a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. In other words, 
they will have a place among the people of God. They will be blessed along with the people of God. And so we see there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. If you are in Christ, you are a co-heir with him. You are a participant in the body and blood of Christ. You are given a place among the people of God. A heritage that God says is better than sons and daughters. And in this life, even you do not know yet God's full purpose for you. As Pastor Brian mentioned recently when he brought up this topic, it may be that God has kept your womb closed so that you could foster or adopt children who need a good home. Let's continue on. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb a reward. Now this is not to be viewed as a reward in the sense of something deserved. Right? This is not a promise that if you please God, he will always grant you children. Uh, but as Calvin notes, reward and heritage in this text are given as parallel terms. And they are likely intended to mean roughly the same thing. Now if you read through the Old Testament in particular, you'll see that parallelism is a very common literary device. Uh, and this is where an idea is stated, and then it's stated again, repeated, using slightly different words, but meaning essentially the same thing. I uh, give an example of this in Psalm 120, where it says, Deliver me, Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. Right? The point there is not to dive in and say, okay, what's the difference between lying lips and deceitful tongues? Um, and so also Calvin argues that the point here is that we would not try to delve into the differences between a heritage and reward, but rather that we would see what it is these two words have in common. Right? Both a heritage and a reward is something that is given from another. As this, this whole psalm points out, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. It is not the strength or purpose of men that causes things to succeed, but their success is dependent upon the Lord. The children are a heritage from the Lord, something given from God, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Verse 4. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Now notice here from the text, not only are children a blessing, but many children are a blessing. Blessed is the man with a full quiver of arrows, uh, a full house, a full van, <laughs> the man with many children. Now, we'll come back to this text yet, but just notice for now how radically different the biblical perspective is from our godless secular culture. Children are a blessing. We are to view them as being a special and wonderful gift directly from the hand of God. And not only are children a blessing generally, but many children are a blessing. And, he, and here's where this becomes a problem for many Christians. When you examine the reasons that they will give for not wanting children, or perhaps for not wanting many children, their reasoning is frequently, not always, 
but frequently rooted in a worldview that is antithetical to Scripture. When it comes down to it, if you work through all of the reasons they would give, at the bottom, what you will often find is that they simply do not view children to be the blessing that Scripture says they are. Now, please hear me closely again. I am not saying that it is a biblical requirement for every couple to have as many children as humanly possible. Not saying that. But I am saying that on every issue, we as God's people must view things as he does. We must view things as God has revealed them to us in his word. Our thinking must align with scripture. And on this issue in particular, I believe that many Christians have fundamentally unbiblical views. So I challenge you, ask yourself, is my worldview a biblical worldview? Or have I simply imbibed, taken on the views of the godless culture around me? Is my decision-making driven by a desire to please God and to live in accord with his word? Or am I simply doing whatever seems right in my own eyes? Christian, do you agree with God that the man is blessed who fills his quiver? To bring this back to our hypothetical couple with the pregnancy scare, we could ask them, why such a visceral reaction? Why does something that God declares to be a blessing fill you with dread, fear, and anxiety? I would submit to you that the couple who responds this way, barring some other extenuating circumstances, is likely not holding a biblical view of children. Now, one of the major remedies for us to combat an unbiblical view of children will be for us to see how it is that children fit into the mission of God. And here we come to our second heading, children in the mission of God. <clears throat> in the beginning, God made a good world and filled it with good things. And he created man, male and female in his image, and he gave them an assignment. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. As you may remember from our first sermon in this series, mankind's original mission, often called the dominion mandate or the cultural mandate, uh, and uh, pardon me, God gave us this mission to have dominion. And from this mission, we can glean what God's purpose originally was for the world. Man and woman as the image bearers of God, ruling fruitfully in God's stead, cultivating and subduing the world, filling it with image bearers, who being fruitful and multiplying are imitating God and bringing order out of chaos, exercising God-glorifying dominion until the whole earth is filled and subdued, ordered to the glory of God. As commentator C. John Collins writes, man's original task was to begin from Eden, to work their way outward, and to spread the blessings of Eden throughout the entire earth. 
Now, through that sermon, you may remember we traced the redemptive purposes of God through the Bible until we arrived at Christ, who came to redeem the fallen creation. Christ Jesus came to conquer sin, death, and Satan, being the deliverer promised in Genesis 3, the one who would come to crush the head of the serpent. And at the end of Christ's time on earth, after his resurrection, he declared, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now notice the connection between the original dominion mandate and the Great Commission. If man had been faithful to the original dominion mandate, the end result would have been a world filled with the image of God, glorifying him through their fruitful dominion. To quote the prophets, a world full of the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Now compare how similar that image is to what would happen if the Great Commission were accomplished. If the church, by the power of the Spirit and the invincible gospel, were faithful to bring that gospel to the ends of the earth, to disciple the nations, the end result would look remarkably similar to the end result of having fulfilled the dominion mandate. We would see a world full of the image of God, full of people exercising God-glorifying dominion, people living in communion with God and one another. So now we ask, how do children play into all of this? Well, the fact is, children have been essential from the beginning. Obviously so, in the dominion mandate, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. To be fruitful and multiply meant have babies, have lots of babies. Train them to know the Lord and send them out to take dominion, to cultivate, produce, subdue, and glorify God. Now, how about the Great Commission? How do children play into this? Well, we see the central command in the Great Commission is to make disciples. There are two ways to make disciples. The first is through evangelizing the lost, Right, as we bring the gospel to those who haven't heard it, uh, to those living in rebellion to God, uh, we bring the gospel to them and see them converted. That is the first way to make a disciple, and that is vitally important to the church's mission. We must bring the good news to the lost. But the second way to make disciples, one we may not often think of as fulfilling the Great Commission, is to be fruitful and multiply, and then to bring up your children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. It's interesting that we don't often think of it this way, but this is actually probably the primary way that God has been building his kingdom throughout history. The Great Commission will likely be accomplished primarily by this second track. Just speaking anecdotally, I'd be willing to guess that most of us in this room were first introduced to Christ through the influence of our own parents. 
And from what we see in scripture, we should actually expect this to be the case. While there is no guarantee or promise in scripture that the children of believers will automatically be Christians, what we do find is that God likes to work multi-generationally. Consider this statement right in the middle of the Ten Commandments. After God commands his people to worship him rightly in the second commandment, God then adds the reason. He says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And the implication there is that it is to thousands of generations that God will show steadfast love. And Deuteronomy 7 verse 9 draws that out explicitly. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him to a thousand generations. <clears throat> Now see how all of this ties together. While we, of course, must have a deep concern to reach the lost and to see God's grace reach those with no Christian background, what we also see is that God loves to work generationally. God has created the family as the primary vehicle of discipleship. Children are born into homes and are then raised and trained by the two people whom they love and trust the most through their formative years. What better discipleship program could you possibly ask for? Now, coming at this on a strategic level, this is a fantastic plan to extend the kingdom of God. We might even say that God knows what he's doing. Secular culture hates children, Secular culture is the culture of death. They promote the fruitlessness of homosexuality, the bloody sacrament of abortion, the delay of childbearing for career and monetary goals. And we are even told that children are bad for the environment, uh, some going as far as to say that parents have a moral responsibility to limit their family size in order to fight climate change. Secularism views children essentially as the cancer of the planet. We are just consuming resources and we are bad for the world. <laughs> In most Western nations, birth rates are now below replacement levels for our populations. Right? To simply maintain the current population in a nation, you need an average of 2.1 children per mother. Canada's average hit a record low of 1.47 in 2019. The secularists aren't having children. While, of course, this is all in the hands of God and his election, still, given what scripture says about children and the many promises of God about children, I believe that it should be our view that if Christians as a whole would simply be fruitful and multiply and be, live committed to raising their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, we would then see the kingdom of God grow and expand, quite literally, exponentially. Now just consider our church. 
For the sake of argument, let's suppose that we began with 25 families, all of childbearing age. Now, if all of those families had even four kids each, and each of those kids married and had another four kids each and so on, within only four generations, that would be 6,400 people. And if all of those families had five kids each, the number jumps to 15,000 in four generations. Now, that is a lot of disciples in a relatively short time. Now, just for perspective, four generations can live to see one another. Uh, my wife still has a great-grandparent that is still alive, which means that our children are her great-great-grandchildren. Right? That's four generations right there. Children, uh, Christians committed to this strategy could have a radical impact for the kingdom in a single lifetime. And just think of what 6,400 people could do for the kingdom if they stuck around in one town, uh, if they were planting churches, faithful churches in a region. Kevin DeYoung writes, here's a culture war strategy that conservative Christians should get behind. He says, have more children and disciple them like crazy. Strongly consider having more children than you think you can handle. You don't have to be a fertility maximalist to recognize that children are always lauded as a blessing in the Bible. Close quote. And so having children, therefore, should not be viewed as something to help pass the time. It should not simply be done to ensure that we will have people to take care of us when we are older. Children are not simply accessories or a cuteness factor to add to your Instagram page. Rather, as I hope we've seen, they are a vital part of how we are to fulfill the mission that God has given to us. And this all raises a very interesting question. If the secularists are not having children, why does it seem like secularism keeps growing while Christianity keeps shrinking? Well, the unfortunate reality is that the statistics show that Christians are losing their children. All of the fruitfulness in the world will do nothing to advance the kingdom of God if all of our children grow up to reject the faith. And so this leads us to our third point for this morning, the discipleship of children. Having now seen the importance of children and the role they are to play in kingdom expansion, we now turn to the question of how do we get there? How are children to be discipled? And we'll spend uh, the rest of this sermon and also next week looking at that question. Now, the majority view that has emerged in the church for over the past 50 years uh, is what I call drop-off culture. Right? How are we going to disciple our children? Drop-off culture. The view that the godly parent is the one who ensures that their kid is in as many Christian programs as possible. Right? This view says that discipleship is primarily to take place in Sunday school, Awana, DVBS, kids clubs, youth group, etc. The good and godly parent is the one consistently dropping off their children for all of these programs. 
The primary disciplers of children, therefore, in this view, are the volunteers, the Sunday school teachers, youth pastors, and leaders of these programs. Now, not to take anything away from the good and godly intentions of the volunteers and parents involved in these programs, the fact is, if we are viewing those things as primary, we have missed the biblical pattern that God has given us. The fact is, if you go to the Bible to answer the question of youth discipleship, what you will find is that every single passage that specifically addresses the discipleship of children and youth is directed at their parents. Every single one. Now let's look at a few of them. I can turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 to 6. Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, if you've read any books on discipleship, one of the things that you'll see frequently emphasized is the need to simply spend time with those you are discipling. Uh, to simply bring your potential disciple into your life. Mark Dever writes this, So much of discipling is doing what you ordinarily do, but bringing people along with you and having meaningful conversations like Jesus did. Close quote. Now that is sound advice for disciple making. Commend that wholeheartedly. But what we also see is that this is the exact pattern that God commands parents to follow in the bringing up of their children. Look in our text. Teach these things diligently to your children. When you're walking from place to place, when you rise up in the morning, when you sit in your house, when you lie down, in other words, take every opportunity in your regular everyday life to instruct your children in the way of the Lord. Again, what better opportunity could you ask for uh, for disciple making than having someone live in your home with you for 18 or more years? God commands parents to work meaningful, discipleship-oriented conversations into their everyday lives, to diligently teach their children. Uh, for our next text, you can turn with me to Psalm 78, read verses 1 to 8. Psalm 78. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us. 
We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell it to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Now Psalm 78 gives us a picture of how Deuteronomy 6 was being fulfilled in the days of Asaph. In verse 5, Asaph writes of how the testimonies of God were passed down during previous generations and how the responsibility is for the present generation to tell the coming generation. This is the pattern in Scripture, and it is assumed to be the norm for the people of God. Now, we'll expand more on this next week, but an often overlooked element of discipleship is discipline. Right? Actually, every discipline text uh, is addressing discipleship. And it is parents who are to wield the rod of discipline in the life of a child. Proverbs 22, verse 15. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Proverbs 13, verse 24 says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Proverbs 23, 13, and 14 says, Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. Proverbs 29, verse 15. The rod and reproof give wisdom. But a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Proverbs 29, verse 17, discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. Corrective discipline is aiming at character formation. Character formation is a vital element of discipleship. We are to enforce God's law within our homes. God has given parents the vital duty of disciplining their children as part of their discipleship. And finally, you can jump with me to the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, we'll read verse 1 to 4. Ephesians 6, 1 to 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, for this is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There's the text we've been referencing. Uh, bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so we see that parents have a duty before God to disciple their children, to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And Paul even targets fathers in Ephesians 6 as having a special responsibility to oversee the discipleship of their children. So to summarize, if you went to the scriptures to seek to discern what God's intention is for the discipleship of children and youth, having seen that every text that specifically addresses this topic is addressing their parents, 
you would conclude that parents, therefore, are to be the primary disciplers of their children. Now, that's not to say that the church and uh, other people can have no role at all, but we must understand that it is not the leading role. That place belongs to parents. This means that if we would be faithful to God, we must create a shift in our thinking away from drop-off culture and towards, as Vodi Bauckham calls it, a family-driven faith. We must begin to view the family and the home as the primary vehicle for discipleship. Now, we as a church are absolutely convinced that the best thing we could possibly do for the discipleship of the next generation is to convince parents and especially fathers of their duty to bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Again, since this is what we see in Scripture, we must trust that God knows what he's doing. Now, when I was a youth pastor, I once had a parent come up to me and tell me that I needed to make youth group more fun because his son didn't want to come to church anymore. The solution in his mind was less Bible study, less prayer, less singing praises and meaningful discussions, and instead for us to simply play more games on Wednesday nights. That was going to make his son want to come to church. Well, I asked him what his uh, home life was like. Do you pray with your family? Do you lead them? Uh, Do you read the Bible to them? Do you lead in family worship? Are you communicating to them the importance of the faith, the importance of the church? Are you speaking of these things, right, when you lie down, when you rise, and when you walk? His answer to me was that he never opened the Bible in the home because when he was growing up, it was only when he was in trouble that his dad would ever open the Bible, and so he just simply didn't. Now, his answer was heartbreaking. Here was a father who, by his own admission, was doing nothing at all in the home to pass on the faith to his kids, who was then blaming me for the fact that his kid didn't want to come to church. Not enough games. Philosophy of ministry questions aside, I remain absolutely convinced that no matter what I would have done on Wednesday nights, nothing would have helped that young man more than convincing his father that he bore the primary duty to disciple his own children. Brothers and sisters, we cannot bypass God's commandments and expect him to bless our disobedience. The drop-off culture of the last 50 years no matter how sincere it may have been, has borne rotten fruit. And I say that as someone who has been involved for over 10 years in various forms of youth ministry. Christians are losing their kids. Vodi Bakum writes, Anyone who has been paying attention lately is aware of the startling statistics concerning Christian children leaving the faith. Depending on the study, we are losing the vast majority of teens raised in evangelical homes by the time they reach their freshman year of college. It doesn't take a statistical genius to figure out 
that something is wrong with the way we are training our children. Close quote. He goes on to say, I believe we are looking for answers in all the wrong places. Our children are not falling away because the church is doing a poor job, although that is undoubtedly a factor. Our children are falling away because we are asking the church to do what God designed the family to accomplish. Discipleship and multi-generational faithfulness begins and ends at home. At best, the church is to play a supporting role as it equips the saints for the work of ministry. Ephesians 4.12, close quote. If we would see our children become like arrows in the hands of a warrior, we must train them. If we would release them from the bow and see them hit the target, we must be diligent to follow all of God's commands for the discipleship of our children. Rodi Bauckham has said that his goal for his nine children, perhaps more by now, was to see his children become not merely arrows, but ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles. He described the silo of his home would open and one by one, those missiles would be launched out into the world to strike mighty blows against the kingdom of darkness. Brothers and sisters, this is how we must view parenting. This is how we must view our children. The home is your mission field. Your children are your disciples, the ones that God has entrusted to you and commanded you to bring up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. God has made you the primary disciplers of your children. Now, this actually brings tremendous meaning to everything in the home. Every diaper you change with this view is aiming at dominion. Every dish that you wash is kingdom work. Every long hour you spend grinding away at your job to provide for your family is direct service to the kingdom of God. Every nitty-gritty thing we do for our families is necessary. And if we see things rightly, it is glorious. Saturate your lives in the gospel. See everything through the lens of scripture. Take every opportunity you have to teach your children of Christ, of his offices, prophet, priest, and king of his work delivering to us the word of God, living the life we were required to live, dying on the cross for our sins, rising from the dead, and ascending to intercede at the right hand of the Father, ruling, governing us, and subduing all his and our enemies. View your home as a mini church with the Father as the family shepherd. Parents, your children are a blessing from the Lord, and he has assigned you to disciple them. There is no substitute for what God has appointed. Bring up your children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord and see the kingdom of God grow. Amen.